Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is David Brown, Associate Professor and Holder of a Canada Research Chair in Energy, Economics, and Policy at the University of Alberta. His research lies at the intersection of energy economics, industrial organization, and regulatory policy, with a particular focus on the performance of electricity markets. So today, Dave and I are discussing a paper that he co-authored with RFF University Fellow Lucia Muhlenbach, who's at the University of Calgary. And the paper is on the value of electricity reliability to consumers in California who were faced with electricity blackouts. This research has recently been published as a working paper on RFF's website, so definitely check it out. But in the meantime, enjoy this chance to hear directly from one of the authors on this intriguing study. Stay with us. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today on Resources Radio. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. So we'll get to the paper in just a minute, of course. Um, But before that, I know it's always nice for our listeners to know a little bit more about our guests. So let me ask you, how did you end up in Alberta working on electricity issues? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I I did my PhD thesis at the University of Florida. um, And a lot of my work was analyzing questions related to restructure electricity markets and kind of how do we motivate investment, minimize cost in these markets. Uh, and I made my way through, you know, the, the the job market process, that is the academic job market, to Alberta. And Alberta was a really good place for me because they had a very similar electricity market to ones that operate in the United States. So it was kind of a nice natural transition to where my dissertation research was. And why were you drawn to work on electricity issues in the first place? Why is that a sector that particularly uh, intrigued you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in undergrad, I was working on, you know, interested in questions related to energy economics in particular. Um, and electricity markets is, you know, back in 2014 is a really active space, right? So there's a lot of renewables, a lot of policy changes. So it seemed like a really nice place to analyze questions in the energy sector. Okay, great. Well, let's dive into the discussion of this new working paper that you co-authored again with Lucia Muhlenbach. Uh, the title of that paper is The Value of Electricity Reliability, Evidence from Battery Adoption. And I mentioned at the outset that the research focuses on consumers in California, and in particular on ones who have had their power cut intentionally by utilities to avoid wildfires that might be induced by electric infrastructure, which has certainly been an issue in the past. So why don't you start by giving us some context, grounding us in the particulars of kind of the electricity outages that you focused on? Yeah, for sure. So I think it's important to have a bit of background. So the context in California, as many people know, is California was faced with these large and deadly wildfires really starting, say, in 2015 and ever since then. And these are really sparked by the drought conditions and the winds in California. And in particular, some wildfires were triggered by electric infrastructure. So you can kind of think about vegetation hitting power lines, causing sparks. Those sparks fall on the ground, hit the really dry you know, ground, and spark wildfires. So since 2017, this has been linked to almost over 30 wildfires and burning over 23,000 homes and businesses. So California, a temporary fix um, is these public safety power shutoffs, so PSPS outages. I'll try and minimize jargon. Um, 
But PSPS outages, effectively what they do is rather than have this high risk of electric infrastructure induced wildfires, they're going to de-energize large segments of the grid. Um, and this really started to pick up in the summer of 2018 uh, when the California Public Utility Commission passed a resolution that basically said, okay, all investor-owned utilities in California can use these outage events to de-energize the grid to basically try and reduce the risk of these power outages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So quite intentional then, and you know, quite by design, um, which I think is an interesting piece of the puzzle here for this paper. So I want to get methodological for just a minute. And uh, so one thing I noted in looking over the paper is that it, it adds to the literature on a consumer's willingness to pay to avoid these electricity outages, which is referred to at times as the value of lost load. So that is a term that I'm hoping we can spend just a little bit of time on. Can you say a bit about the importance of that value? Again, the value of lost load and maybe some of the research techniques that are, are that are typically employed to help understand that value. Yeah, so this the the idea of vol, so value of lost load, uh, kind of gets back to this issue of electricity market design, where we're concerned about these increasing frequency and intensity of power outages. So as we just alluded to in California, there's been large and intense power outages. Uh, you think back to February 2021 with Texas's winter storm event. So there, there's these really serious and growing concerns about reliability and resiliency. So in, in principle, we can make the electricity good really, really reliable, right? You can install tons of backup generation, on-site fuel storage of, say, natural gas, we can underline transmission and distribution lines, which could cause, say, wildfires. The, the, the key challenge is at what cost, right? So as anything in economics, we care about the cost and the benefits of that. So, so what are the benefits? Well, that kind of gets to the fundamental question of how much do people actually value electricity reliability? And that's kind of where it enter the vol, so the willingness to pay to avoid power outages. Um, and as you can imagine, this, this vol, this willingness to pay, has a lot of important implications in electricity markets. So think about reliability standards that determine these capital investments, right? We got to say, okay, how much reliability do we want? Well, we got to think about the costs and benefits. And there's a standard one event per 10-year regulatory requirement that says we don't, we don't want a lot of power outages. And a lot of that reliability requirement is grounded in the idea of what are we willing to pay to avoid power outages. Another classic example is quantifying damages of outages. And lastly, setting scarcity pricing in wholesale markets. So, so but despite the clear, and, and I could talk all day about it, but uh, despite the clear importance of vol, estimates are really, really difficult, right? So... Estimates in the literature largely rely on stated preference surveys. Uh, even though they do, you know, there's some high quality work in that area, they run into some issues of basically asking people questions to elicit their preferences. So, so what we do is we want to fill this gap by providing among the first reveal preference estimates of this key parameter vol. 
Hmm. Yeah, let's let's spend just a little time on that difference as well. So you mentioned stated preference, and that's what consumers say that they're willing to pay to increase reliability. Uh, but my understanding is that you and Lucia employed some pretty innovative techniques to show what you referred to as revealed preference. So what's the difference between stated preference and revealed preference? And why does it matter? Yeah, so stated preference, you know, at a 10,000 foot level asks people the question, right? So they ask survey questions, these hypothetical questions that are carefully designed, or they provide them with different options that they can choose from. And based upon those questions or those choices, they try and back out key parameters. So for example, how much are you willing to pay to avoid a blackout or avoiding a power outage? So there's there's numerous potential biases, and there's a large literature pointing out these challenges with state of preference surveys. But the one that's most intuitive to me is this hypothetical bias, right? So imagine I just ask you a theoretical question. Like, if you were exposed to an outage, how much would you be willing to pay? And that's that's a pretty hard thing to do, at least for me conceptually, to give you an answer to that question. So what reveal preferences does, and this is the the kind of ideal solution, but it's very difficult to do, is rather than looking at what you say you're going to do, let's actually look at what you do. Um, and, and we typically believe that we can elicit better estimates based upon revealed preferences. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that's great. That's fantastic context. So with all of that background, uh, let's talk a little bit more about how you approached this work. And as I noted, the title of the paper references evidence from battery adoption. So how does battery adoption fit into this revealed preference work? And and maybe say a little bit about what data on battery adoption you were looking at. Yeah, so the, there's a common approach in environmental economics when there's not a clear market to value a good, right? So, you know, there's not a clear market to value your willingness to pay to avoid, say, air pollution or water pollution. So what, what a lot of people do in the environmental economics literature is trying to say, what are investments that people make to avoid these damages? So what are, I invest in air purifiers to avoid air pollution. I buy water bottles to avoid water pollution. These are called defensive investments or averting expenditures. And in a nutshell, that's basically what we do. We say, okay, we adopt this approach that we look at what you do. We look at the investments that you will make to avoid power outages. And importantly for our context, solar panels alone cannot avert power outages. Um, Think about it as... The electricity company has technicians that go and try and reconnect your home during outage. You can't have the the wire live, um, so they actually have to shut off your solar panel, in essence. But with batteries, it allows you to kind of island your home, and it allows you to operate during a power outage. So what we do is we utilize this as a defensive investment, and we kind of leverage this. I view this as the stars have aligned for us from a data perspective. Um, so we have really unique data. So we have publicly available data on solar and battery adoption at the zip code level. And most importantly for our context, which is quite unique, we have distribution feeder level outage data. So essentially when there's a PSPS outage, California has published every single distribution feeder on outage and the number of customers that are affected. 
And the last piece of the puzzle is the California Public Utility Commission requires all utilities to publish detailed spatial maps of the entire grid in California, which is really unique. So we leverage all these data sets to kind of match outages to locations to solar and battery adoptions. Hmm, That's really interesting. Do you know why California has... uh placed extra emphasis on um, making this data publicly available compared to other other places? Yeah. So I talk to regulators all the time and I'm like, California is the place to look at. So this is because of other regulatory dockets related to distributed energy resources more broadly. So solar, EVs, batteries. There's a big emphasis on transparency in California about where to locate these resources and how to value their locations and how to leverage that value. And in order to unlock that value, the CPUC, so California Public Utility Commission, has unlocked data to provide more transparency and information. Very interesting. Okay, well, that's great. Um, So what did you find related to battery adoption? I'm going to leave it at that very broad question. I know there are a number of kind of packaged findings within there, but let me just ask you that. What did did you find related to battery adoption? Yeah, so we, and we don't need to get too into the weeds from an econometrics standpoint, but we effectively implement a a difference in difference methodology to back out how much these outages impacted adoption. And we find a really large increase in solar and storage adoption in outage-exposed zip codes relative to zip codes not exposed to those power outages. And, And to give you kind of a scale of this number, we can use this model to essentially simulate the percentage increase in battery adoption in Pacific Gas and Electric, which is where we're focusing on, And we find that the outages caused a 45% increase in battery adoption in PG&E that would not have otherwise occurred. So a a very sizable proportional increase in battery adoption. And then the last thing I was saying on that before we can can talk more about the findings, but uh, one other key finding we found was that there's some clear income inequality. So the the vast majority of adoptions were adopted in the top 25 percentile of income by zip code. So these things are expensive, right? So a standard power wall, a Tesla power wall, which is the majority of adoptions in our data, is $13,000 just for the battery. So it's, it's a pretty expensive thing. And then the, the solar panels on top of that, so it's standard 5 kilowatt solar system, is anywhere from $12,000 to $16,000. So together you're talking about $25,000 of unsubsidized cost for this system. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, and I just wanted to clarify one thing or make sure that I'm clear on one thing. So um, these the batteries really do need to be installed with a solar system uh, so that the battery is actually being fed by the solar when it's up and running. Um, so that installing a battery on its own isn't effective as a resilient strategy. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, technically you could install a battery and charge it from the grid, but I mean, you don't, we very rarely see anything like that. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Well, I definitely want to come back to your last point about the income distribution. But first, let me turn to something else that really caught my eye as I was looking through the paper. And you and Lucia note that, and I'm going to quote here, quote, the sunk costs of new distributed energy technologies are rapidly changing. 
making it important to also capture the implications of uncertainty, such as the additional value of waiting to adopt. So I'm, I'm going to pull you back into the methodological weeds for, again here for a second, but I'd love to hear just a little bit more about why that uncertainty matters and how you handled the uncertainty around battery cost trajectories in your, in your research. So in our setting, this kind of gets at the heart of why we developed this, you know, again, in the weeds, dynamic structural model. And I'll try and keep it at a high level, but you could think about this issue of the decision to invest in solar or solar plus storage in general is it's a really complicated decision, right? It's a durable good. And there's a lot of things you got to consider, right? So there's upfront costs. So as I alluded to, anywhere from $15,000 to $30,000 for this system. You've got subsidies, and those subsidies are changing over time. It has impacts on your bill. So you consume power from your solar panels. You can arbitrage on different time of use rates using your solar when it's not on an outage. You have this warm glow, this, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I have solar panels. I have a battery. I can brag about it to my friends. And lastly, installing a battery can avoid consequences of future outages. But layer on top of all of these factors, you don't know how these things are going to evolve going forward, right? So I, I have a decent understanding of what's going to happen today on all these factors, but I don't know how they're going to evolve. And then I have to make the decision, do I invest now or do I wait a year to adopt this technology? So that is why we developed this dynamic model, which essentially allows us to simultaneously model the investment decision, but also build into the model the uncertainty that I face going forward. Hmm. Okay. Does the policy landscape come into play? You mentioned subsidies earlier on, too. And certainly, I know subsidies, particularly when they're at the scale that they have been in the past and are likely to be in the future, uh, can make a significant difference, too. So does does the policy landscape also come into play? And have recent um, have recent bills actually reduced some of the uncertainty around the availability of those policy incentives? Yeah, so there's two key relevant subsidies for residential solar and storage. The first is this federal income tax credit, um, which provides, it was 26% and 30% of the money you can get back on the capital cost of the technology. But layer on top of that, actually, after these events, which primarily occurred in 2019, in mid-2020, California started to really shift to this self-generation incentive program, so SGIP, and essentially provides really big subsidies for battery storage, targeting households that are impacted by these PSPS outages. So absolutely, um, there's there's big impacts of these different subsidy policies on batteries. But these, these subsidy policies, especially the SGIP, was announced and changed after these these large PSPS events. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's sum it all up. Um, this has been fantastic, by the way. You've done a really great job of explaining both the kind of context and the methodology. So I'm going to sum it all up. And using this modeling framework that we've been discussing, uh, what do you find in terms of the value of loss load estimates, hearkening all the way back to our earlier discussion of the value of loss load? And, and how does that compare to previous research? So we find that uh, our vol estimates, and of course, everything depends upon different tweaks of the model, but we're talking about 3,000, and I'll, I'll provide context because most people be like, what the heck is this number? 
but uh, $3,500 to $7,000 per megawatt hour. And to provide you with some perspective, the average retail price of electricity, so every, every single unit of electricity you consume, if you scale that up to a megawatt hour, it's $160. So it's a pretty big scale factor above the standard price we pay for electricity. And to provide you another comparison, the, I mentioned these wholesale price caps. So these things are basically maximum prices that they can charge in any given hour for wholesale electricity. Alberta, it's $1,000 where I live. In Texas, it's 5000 So Texas lands us right in the middle of our range of vol. And you ask the question of the existing literature. And, and, and as I mentioned, state of preference Unfortunately, it's all over the map. So there's some estimates as low as 50 bucks and some estimates as high as $100,000. So we're smack dab in the range of U.S. estimates, which tend to vary between $1,000 and $9,000. And can you say just a little bit more about why those are so radically different, so much radically higher than what people are actually paying for electricity? It seems... um, I don't know if counterintuitive is the right word, but, you know, here we are, people concerned about rising electricity prices, when in reality, it seems like this is showing that they'd be willing to pay a lot more to make sure that they have electricity. So I'm not sure I'm thinking about that the right way, but I'm wondering if you can say just a little bit more about how to how to think about that difference between the revealed preference versus the actual electricity prices. Definitely, yeah. So I think it's it's tough, right? So the $160, for example, is, you know, every unit of electricity, this is what I'm paying on average across the United States. Um, but vol, we're talking about outages, right? So if you have a power outage, a lot can happen, you know? So there's, you lose power for days, your food goes bad, you have really serious life inconveniences. And in the context of California and Texas, People have medical equipment, right, that relies upon electricity, and this can cause serious health and potentially death consequences. So so I think it's important to differentiate your consumption value and then your value to avoid a complete blackout. So, I, yeah, I think it's it's I totally understand your question, but I think they're two different things a little bit. That's that's great. That's a yeah, a good way for me to think about it, and I'm sure helpful for our listeners too. So I guess I'd like to close our discussion of the paper by revisiting the income distribution finding and the reality that, I'm going to quote here again, uh, that recent outages amplify the growing disparity in the adoption of emerging energy technologies. So you certainly gave you know a, a good explanation of the cost of these technologies and and it seems inevitable that at the at those price ranges they would be adopted more by high income uh, consumers. So I'm not honestly I'm not too surprised at that finding. But I guess I wanted to ask you um, a bit of a forward looking question on this and whether your research actually provides any clues as to how utilities or policymakers or other decision makers could actually begin to ameliorate that disparity a bit more. Yeah, so there's there's been these long-standing concerns of equity in, in these distributed energy resources. So you're talking solar, electric vehicles, and now battery storage. Um, and it, I think it's particularly important here because it's not just a financial concern, right? So a lot of these concerns are you don't have access to solar panels. You can't internalize the financial and environmental benefits as a household. Well, 
our context is, I would say, even more concerning that if we're concerned that there's going to be reduced reliability on the electricity grid and only high income people can avert, can do something to avoid the consequences of that, I think those concerns become even more stark. So what could policymakers do? And, and it's, you know, they recognize these challenges and this is a serious problem. There, there's ongoing efforts. So as I mentioned in California, they have this self-generation incentive program, SGIP. And for example, they have subsidies targeting battery adoption. And this started in the summer of 2020. It really ramped up by trying to target low-income households and people with medical conditions who may be particularly vulnerable to these outage events. And I have a, a companion paper that essentially correlates battery adoption and income and other socioeconomic things, factors, I should say. And it suggests that really well-targeted subsidies, for example, these SGIP subsidies, can start to overcome some of those gaps um, because they have a really they have a small line item in the SGIP that's really targeting low income, and and I do find that those really targeted subsidies are helping kind of break the barrier. and And these subsidies are really big, by the way. So they they actually can cover the vast majority of that thirteen thousand dollar cost of a battery. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's great. I like ending on a. A somewhat optimistic note that there are, in fact, ways that that gap can be closed a little bit by some constructive policymaking. So that's great. That's that's really great. Uh, so, Dave, I think we're at the end of our time. And I did want to close our discussion with the regular feature, Top of the Stack. So what would you want to recommend uh, to our listeners? Could be media of any type, uh, whether on this topic or otherwise, uh, that you'd want our listeners to consider. So I'm going to give a nod, actually, because I'm going to send an email to my students, um, a common resources blog post of RFF after this this podcast, because I, I had a conversation with my students about the environmental implications of electric vehicles. And it just so happens that Joshua Lynn and Daniel Shawhan um, posted a blog, and I found it a few days ago, of the benefits of electric vehicles for climate change, air pollution, and health. So... I'm I'm going to fire that off to my students uh, after this podcast, actually. Oh, thanks, Dave. That's very nice. Well, we'll happily link back to our own content, too. And certainly, as noted at the beginning, uh, your paper will be available as a working paper on the RFF website. And um, perhaps you could also share with us your, um, I don't know if your other paper that you were referencing is actually available as well, but we'd be happy to link to that, too, uh, since it sounds very relevant to our discussion. So, yeah. So we'll make sure that we link to those items for our listeners to continue the learning. Great. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, great. All right, Dave, thanks so much, and great to talk with you. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.